0: Brought to you by State Farm.
3: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. that feel just as good discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first like worthington and liz claiborne for her each and women's petite and plus sizes here spring comes in all shapes sizes and colors jc penny make everybody count
1: the kakadu plum is an australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin c than oranges so why have you never heard of it pr no one's drinking a kakadu smoothie I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details. History Versus
4: is a production of iHeartRadio and Mental Floss.
5: The carvers stand on the scaffolding hundreds of feet high, clad in overalls and face masks, small pneumatic hammers in hand. The clatter of drills and granite dust fills the air, as they have almost every day of construction on Mount Rushmore. For years, these men have worked to sculpt four presidential faces out of the mountain, and now they're about to begin finishing work on the massive sculpture's final face. Work on the face had begun in 1937, and it had been dedicated with much fanfare, including a firework show, two years later, before it was even close to finished. To get to this point, men called pointers had marked where and how deep to drill. Powder monkeys, or workers in charge of the dynamite, had dangled from the top of the mountain and carefully placed small charges to precisely blast away rough exterior rock to reveal white, sparkling granite. Drillers using air-powered jackhammers had further removed stone to get to the carving surface— and carvers, many of whom had worked their way up from other jobs in the mountain, had created polka-dot-esque honeycomb grids on the stone, using a hammer and chisel to remove extra granite. Throughout the process, the features on the 60-foot-tall face had slowly, slowly emerged and gained definition. Two 11-foot-wide eyes, a 20-foot-tall nose, a massive mustache, and the mere suggestion of glasses across the bridge of the nose and the upper cheeks an illusion which will look like full frames to the spectators below. It's now time for what sculptors call fine finishing. The carvers switch on their pneumatic hammers, also known as bumpers. Each is equipped with four bits of steel that clatter against the rock, removing or bumping it a fraction of an inch at a time. Cautiously, they apply the hammers to the stone, buffing the honeycomb grid off of Theodore Roosevelt's massive chin. We know that TR was an adventurer, a man who fought corruption and advocated for a square deal for all, the sporting hunter who lent his name to the teddy bear, a person who cared deeply about conserving nature for the next generation, and, yeah, the guy in the night at the museum movies and on Mount Rushmore. But there is so much more to Roosevelt's legacy. From Mental Floss and iHeartRadio, this is History Versus, a podcast about how your favorite historical figures faced off against their greatest foes. I'm your host, Aaron McCarthy, and for this, the final episode of our first season, we're taking a look back at TR's legacy. This episode is History vs. Theodore Roosevelt. Mount Rushmore is probably one of the things people think of first when they think about Theodore Roosevelt's legacy. The mountain, named for New York lawyer Charles Rushmore in the 1880s, is located in the Black Hills of South Dakota— And I head there on a humid August day with the goal of talking to some other visitors about Theodore Roosevelt, his legacy, and why they think he's on the mountain. I don't know about you, but I hate striking up a conversation with strangers, so I spend a fair amount of time procrastinating. It rains, and then it hails, and in the safety of the gift shop, I contemplate buying some TR socks that say, speak softly and carry a big stick, and also giving up on this whole interviewing random people thing. But when I head back outside, some interview subjects find me. They're the Popes, parents Ben and Sally, and kids Harry and Alice, and they're from London. They came here in part because Alice saw Mount Rushmore on an episode of Phineas and Ferb. Harry's favorite president of the mountain is Washington, but Alice prefers Roosevelt because he was in Night at the Museum. So what else do you know about him besides his exploits in Night at the Museum? He liked to ride horses, and he was a cool guy.
6: We wanted to bring them here anyway, but it was a particular wish of Alice's because she'd grown up seeing that image on
5: TV. That's Ben, Harry and Alice's dad. If you had to guess why he was up on the mountain today, why he was chosen, what would you say? Here's Harry.
7: He probably made a big commitment to the country and, and did something that people wanted to remember.
5: Next, I chat with Lane Johnson, who hails from Texas. Lane knows all about T.R.'s trip to the Amazon, so his response when I ask why T.R. is on the mountain makes sense.
7: I would say because of his sense of adventure.
5: Sharon Wright from Wisconsin says a lot has changed since the first time she came here. What was it like back
3: then? Very quiet and very serene. What What can you tell me about T.R.? Well, he was kind of the the go-getter for the national park system, and he really was one to help preserve The outdoors for everybody, to keep it from being, everything being commercialized, although I'd say this is getting pretty commercialized. It's free to come here, but you have to pay to park, so it's not really free. You used to be able to come here and enjoy it without having to pay to park. Finally,
5: I chat with Aretha Wilson from Ohio. Of the presidents up on the mountain, she says Roosevelt is her favorite.
0: Roosevelt respects his supporters, no matter how big or small. So
3: that's a good thing.
5: We're all standing here today thanks to South Dakota state historian Doan Robinson, who wanted to create a tourist destination in the Black Hills so more people would come to South Dakota. Initially, he wanted to carve famous figures from the history of the West into granite spires located nearby. But the artist chosen to create the monument, Gutzon Borglum, had a completely different location and vision in mind. The President's. When it came down to which presidents to put on the mountain, most were no-brainers. Jefferson was the author of the Declaration of Independence and had expanded the country through the Louisiana Purchase. Washington was the father of the country and allowed Jefferson's ideas to become a reality. Lincoln kept the country together in a time of great strife. But T.R.? Well, T.R. was controversial. Here's Marine mcgee Ballinger. Chief of Interpretation and Public Affairs at Mount Rushmore National Memorial.
0: The whole carving process, that idea begins in 1925. Well, Roosevelt had died in 1919, so most people alive at that point in 1925, they knew him. They knew of his politics, they knew of his presidencies, and there were a lot of people that didn't like him. So he was controversial, but Borglum did like him. And it was Borglum's work of art, and he made the final decision. Theodore Roosevelt will go up there, and he'll go up there because of the Panama Canal. Today, people look at it and say, well, of course Theodore Roosevelt's up there, the conservation president. But that's not what Borglum was thinking.
5: Borglum also knew T.R. personally. He had campaigned for the bull moose when he ran for president in 1912. Mount Rushmore consists of a fine-grained granite called the Harvey Peak Granite, The fine grain means the rock holds together well when you carve it, but it also makes it harder to carve. On the plus side, that means it takes a while to erode.
0: The erosion rate of the harney granite is an inch every 10,000 years. This is tough rock.
5: In other words, people are going to be staring at those faces on the mountain for a long time. Creating Mount Rushmore was not easy work. Finishing the sculpture took 14 years, and Borglum died before it was completed. His son, Lincoln, took over for him. T.R.'s face was the last one finished in 1941. According to Rex Allen Smith in his book The Carving of Mount Rushmore, at its dedication in 1939, 12,000 people attended, the largest attendance of any of the face dedications. Today, the memorial gets more than 2 million visitors annually. Here's one funny thing about T.R. being on Mount Rushmore. He probably would have hated it.
6: He didn't want Any monument of him, like a statue of him or him on horseback, he hated those kind of monuments. He wanted monuments to be either utilitarian in nature, like naming a building after him, or to be artistic.
5: That's Michael Cullenane, a professor of U.S. history at the University of Roehampton in London, and author of Theodore Roosevelt's Ghost, The History and Memory of an American Icon. Colinane is a presidential historian and a diplomatic historian, and he spent the last 10 years looking into TR's legacy, as well as his accomplishments and foreign policies. What's the strangest place you've seen the Roosevelt legacy sort of manifest in pop culture?
6: You know, he shows up in the weirdest places. Miley Cyrus has got a tattoo on her arm uh, of a quote from Theodore Roosevelt.
5: Miley's tattoo aside, or maybe included— Cullinane describes Roosevelt's legacy over the last 100 years since his death as a roller coaster.
6: When he dies in 1919, the, red, the first American Red Scare is going on, and communism is you know, is a, is a, is a communist or a boogeyman. Uh, and Roosevelt is very much seen as this patriotic American and, and also a conservationist and a progressive and all those things as well. But it's almost like he's a saint after he dies.
5: That all changed when historian Henry Pringle published his biography of T.R. in 1931. Cullinane describes Pringle's book as a purposeful revision of Roosevelt that downgraded him from a saint and helped inaugurate what has been called the Crazy Teddy Period. That image of Roosevelt as a juvenile guy who made impulsive decisions lasted until the 1960s. There's
6: a reappraisal, but it never really goes back to the saintly version or or back to that crazy Teddy version. Instead, what we get is a much more moderate version, a a nuanced man with his faults, you know, uh, warts and all, as some people say. And I think, actually, that's been good for the TR brand over the last few years because it means he's this really human character that people can, can relate to. So he's not perfect, and he's not a demon. He's something in between, which I think most of us are.
5: TR's family was extremely protective of his legacy, especially Edith.
6: I've always referred to Edith Roosevelt as the gatekeeper of TR's legacy because she was able to pass over documents to historians. She was able to restrict other other writers from using those documents. In fact, there's some famous uh, incidences in terms of copyright law in which Edith tried to stop people that had letters that Roosevelt wrote to them. She tried to stop having those published. And so... Really, she acts as the gatekeeper for his memory and his legacy. And throughout her life, until she dies in the late 40s, she, that's her role. Um, and she, she really helps the memorial associations um, work towards the image that she wants to see promoted.
5: TR's legacy was so complicated that even his own family couldn't agree on exactly what it was. The Hyde Park Roosevelt's, a.k.a. Franklin and by marriage Eleanor, and the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's, Alice, Ted Jr., et cetera, famously butted heads over it.
6: Because at that point, after TR dies, the legacy becomes the next generation. So they get to shape the legacy of TR, and Alice and Ted are pushing in one direction. And Franklin and Theodore Roosevelt's niece, Eleanor, who of course marries Franklin, are pushing in an opposite direction. And that, that plays out really up until the 1960s when Eleanor and Franklin and Ted are, are dead. Alice lives on until the 1980s, but by that stage, Theodore Roosevelt had kind of become a bipartisan figure. Um, maybe in part because Franklin Roosevelt promoted him as, a, as as the square deal as being the forerunner to the, the New Deal.
5: When we talk about TR's legacy, we often talk about how he was the first modern president. As Kathleen Dalton wrote in Theodore Roosevelt: A Strenuous Life, He is heralded as the architect of the modern presidency, as a world leader who boldly reshaped the office to meet the needs of the new century and redefined America's place in the world. When Roosevelt became president, technology was changing rapidly, and so was life for everyday Americans, thanks to industrialization. Here's Tyler Calaberta, education technician at Sagamore Hill National Historic Site.
7: The country has changed by the time Roosevelt's president. and It's the 20th century. Roosevelt becomes president in 1901. And all of a sudden, you have the United States operating on a world scale where previously it had been pretty isolationist. Now you have territories in the Pacific. Um, you fought a war with the Spanish in Cuba. Um, Roosevelt begins his presidency, and the United States is still occupying the Philippines. They're building the Panama Canal during his presidency. And you have adjustments in technology. So the presidency, all of a sudden, is kind of a full-time job. You can't have a break for the summertime. He was called to be a a modern president because of these changes in technology and changes in policy, changes of United States policy on the world stage. Presidency has changed, and Roosevelt, uh, being a young man, um, I think was fit for things to rapidly change during his presidency.
5: In my opinion, it was also Roosevelt's image control that made him a decidedly modern president, When he got into politics, he started writing posterity letters for historians to study, and he was doing it for the gram, as the kids say, long before social media was a thing. To cultivate his desired cowboy image, for example, he had a photo snapped of himself in a buckskin suit that he'd had made for his time with the Dakotas, but someone who knew him later commented that it was indisputable evidence of the rank tenderfoot. Also, though the photo appeared to have been taken in a forest, it was actually taken in a studio in New York. When he pursued boat thieves down the Little Missouri River, Tierra made sure to bring a camera with him and to get a photo of himself watching over the bandits. But it was a reenactment, and according to some, the men in the picture weren't even the actual thieves. But there were also sides to Roosevelt that he wouldn't let the public see, like how he wouldn't allow himself to be photographed in his tennis outfit. Just one more example of his image control. For Cullenane, it was Roosevelt's use of the bully pulpit as a PR tool that made him the first modern president.
6: I think Roosevelt's ability to speak to the average voter and to get across a version of policy that he wants to see take shape, it's really his administration that's the first to do that. He is a public relations um, dynamo.
5: He points to the war in the Philippines as an example. Roosevelt declared the war over in 1902, but it wasn't over.
6: I mean, the war goes on really until 1915, but officially the war has ended in 1902. And that, in a public relations perspective, is, is a huge move. The role of president as chief promoter is the one that Roosevelt really takes on and makes—that's That that's what makes the big change in office.
5: Many of TR's actions during his tenure fundamentally changed the office of the president like, say, his decision to get things done via executive order. He'd make the call and then leave Congress to debate it.
6: He didn't act impulsively. He thought things through very carefully. I think he had very strong convictions, and he acted very assertively. Maybe that's the word that I would choose to use, is that he is incredibly assertive as a president. And I think every president since him, maybe with the exception of the Republican presidents in the 1920s, but Besides those three presidents, more often than not, presidents have acted assertively. And they've said that it's it's their prerogative to act that way. And I think Roosevelt paved the way for, for the presidency to be that kind of, a, of an instrument of power.
5: Before Roosevelt, no president had hit 300 executive orders. But TR signed more than a thousand. And future presidents followed his example. Woodrow Wilson and Calvin Coolidge would each far exceed that amount. And they would all be eclipsed by Roosevelt yet again when FDR issued 3,721 executive orders over the course of his 12 years in office, a record that probably isn't going anywhere anytime soon. TR's view that he could do anything not expressly forbidden by the Constitution or by law was also a game changer for the presidency.
6: The presidency has sort of gone that way with TR's constitutional view in in that the president if if there are non-enumerated powers, the president can still execute them. I mean, things like going to war is a really good example. When he sent the, the warship to Panama to support the Panamanian revolution, he was effectively sending American troops into a war zone to support a revolution. And and since then, that's happened quite a bit.
5: According to Cullenane, Tierra's decision to intervene internationally has been one of the most lasting legacies of his administration. Many other presidents have followed suit.
6: Woodrow Wilson did this a lot, but you can think about other interventions later on from, you know, say Vietnam to Afghanistan, where the United States president has deployed troops and then Congress has had to respond. And Congress has tried to rein in presidential power in a number of different realms, but perhaps most in in war powers, and they even passed the War Powers Resolution in the 70s to, to restrict the amount of time that the president can send troops abroad. But that's not really been an effective measure to stop the president.
5: Historians today are still debating about some of TR's actions on the international stage, including those he took to speed up the Panama Canal.
6: So the Panama Canal and how you feel about the Panama Canal often has a very clear correlation with how you think about American power more generally, and American imperialism and empire. If you view Roosevelt's decision to take Panama or to force Panama to have this revolution and then take the canal, then you then you see American power as something that's a benevolent force in the world. But if you see that as an overstretch of American power, then you probably think that Roosevelt was, was acting beyond, you know, the the norms and the the regulations of the Constitution and and of what America is supposed to be. I think, actually, the, the Panama decision strikes an ongoing paradox in American history, particularly about American foreign relations, which is that either the United States is to act as an example for the world, or the United States is to actively set the example for the world.
5: In other words, should America stand passively as an example and hope others follow suit? Or should America be more proactive?
6: I think all foreign policies wind up putting the United States in one of those two roles. And Roosevelt very much, very much saw the United States as acting, um, you know, not just as an example, but setting the example for the world. And so that's, that's why he acts the way he does with, with Panama. It's one of those things that successive generations of politicians have, have continued to debate. It's been a flashpoint. It's a really good case study to think about the differences that we have in, uh, in our foreign policies.
5: Some of TR's other actions on the global stage perhaps sent the message they meant to at the time, but didn't necessarily change the course of history. I'm talking about TR's display of American naval power, the Great White Fleet.
6: It was showing off, and it was an opportunity to show the world that there is this emerging naval force. And there's no question that after 1909, the United States as a naval force will only grow in stature from that point on. It's a two- Ocean naval force. There's only one other country in the world that's a two-ocean naval force, and that's Britain. You know, famed at this time for ruling the waves. So this was this was a big pronouncement on the world stage. But did it really have any effect? Did it stop Japan, for example, from taking over colonies in the Pacific and eventually becoming one of the Axis powers in World War II? I don't think so. Um, it, it certainly made the Japanese more deft at how they negotiated. It meant that foreign relations with Britain, say, for example, in the Pacific became more important, but Roosevelt's fleet didn't actually change the balance of power in the Pacific.
5: We'll be right back.
2: (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Get in zone. zone.
4: Welcome to AutoZone. What are you working on today?
2: My check engine lights on.
4: Mm, that could hurt your gas mileage. The AutoZone free fix finder service can help find the fix for free.
2: Get in zone. This whole report for free?
4: That's right, printed and on your phone for free. Get
2: but what if the fix is too tough?
4: We'll recommend a
1: local shop. Fix Finder, only at AutoZone.
2: Get zone. AutoZone.
1: Restrictions apply. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi.
5: I came into this podcast wanting to show Theodore Roosevelt not as a caricature, but as a real person. And no discussion of Theodore Roosevelt's legacy would be complete without talking about his views on race, which we've touched on a bit in other episodes.
6: Well, TR's views on race, I have to say, are probably one of the most interesting bits about him. And I don't think we've given enough airtime to his views on race. I think like we're we're living in a kind of soundbite culture where if you can't get your view across very quickly, then you know, no one understands it, or they don't want to understand it, you know? And I think TR's views on race were really quite complicated, and they're presented as effectively white supremacy or um, or just plain racist, I guess. But there's so much more to it than that.
5: Cullinane is right. I've read a bunch of books about TR for this podcast and have read that his views of race were complicated, that he had a divided heart on matters of race— and that when it came to African Americans, his attitude was enlightened. Many books seem to only touch on the subject, perhaps because TR's thoughts on race are incredibly complex. So with that said, we won't be able to unpack all of TR's views on race here. If, after you listen to this, you're interested in learning more, I'd recommend picking up Thomas Dyer's book Theodore Roosevelt and the Idea of Race. In previous episodes, we've discussed how TR's thoughts on race impacted how he dealt with other nations. So in this discussion, we'll be focusing mostly on his attitudes toward African Americans and Native Americans. But before we get into TR specifically, it's important to put his views into context. We all know that TR was a curious guy who thought of himself as a scientist. So what were the quote-unquote scientific views of race at the time? To find out, I called Dr. Justine Hill-Edwards, an assistant professor of history at the University of Virginia whose focus is on African-American history, the history of slavery, and the history of capitalism.
0: There were um, scientists who were then trying to find a scientific research-based rationale for um, segregation and for white racial superiority really in the late 19th and the early 20th centuries, um, there, there was a rise in racial science and in particular eugenics. So that um, it kind of prov- provided a more kind of scientific rationale for ideas of white ra- racial purity and why that should be the standard and the ideal. And so it was really finding a scientific way to explain why uh, white superiority was good and why it should be a goal in so, social policymaking.
5: Why would white people be looking for a scientific reason to prove that they were superior?
0: Well, I mean, you're talking about a time, especially in the U- in the U.S., uh, post-Civil War, post-Reconstruction, where in particular at African-Americans are working to really gain their civil rights. You have the increase of immigration from places like Japan and, so, and China, too, a little bit. And so you have this kind of increase in kind of racial and et- ethnic diversity that be- begins to occur in this period. And so and interestingly, it's not just in this, this period where, where you, you have kind of white Americans in many ways publicly struggling with the fear and the the idea that they're kind of losing ground to racial and ethnic minorities.
5: Dyer writes that T.R. grew up in an atmosphere of Victorian privilege, was bombarded from early childhood with ideas that stressed the superiority of the white race and the inferiority of non-whites. And his privilege undoubtedly shaped his views of race.
0: Now, interestingly enough, because he was born in New York City, because he was born in the North and not in the South, like in South Carolina or Georgia, he probably held um, what we would consider more progressive or what his contemporaries would probably consider more progressive thoughts about race. But, um, but let's not kind of conflate his progressivism with ideas of that he was in fa- favor of racial equality, because surely he was not.
5: Growing up, TR's mother had told him stories about her childhood in the South, which painted slaves as childish dependents and ignored the horrors of slavery. The tales must have had some influence on his views. He also read a lot. Dyer writes that Roosevelt gloried in Longfellow's saga of King Olaf, which celebrated the Nordic tradition, a key ingredient in 19th-century theories of white supremacy, and that he was also influenced by the Teutonic myth Nibelungalid, which he read during his time living with a German family when he was a teenager. Dyer says that its influence can clearly be seen in Roosevelt's winning of the West. Maine Reads' books and the magazine Our Young Folks were among TR's favorite things to read— and they contained ugly racial stereotypes about Native Americans and African Americans. Darwin's theory of evolution was also an influence, as were some of Roosevelt's professors at Harvard. T.R. continued to read voraciously after his college career, and also corresponded with a number of scientists of his era. According to Dyer, you can see all of these influences in T.R.'s views and writings about race, which he viewed both in terms of nationality and in terms of skin color. Roosevelt believed that the white, English-speaking race was the most advanced race, but he was also a proponent of neo-Lamarckianism. The idea came from a French scientist named Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who predated Darwin and believed that certain traits could be cultivated and passed to later generations.
0: While Darwin, for example, thought about a natural evolution, Lamarck's idea more had to do with the idea that species could in some some way choose which traits to pass along to their offspring.
5: This doesn't mean that one day you decide you want your future child to be a genius and then, bam, they're a genius. There are differences between Lamarckian and Neo-Lamarckian belief, but a Neo-Lamarckian lecture from the 1890s discusses the idea. A Darwinist would look at the children of pianists and say that they might inherit dexterity or a good ear, But they won't inherit piano skills. They'll need to learn the piano the same way their parents did. And the Olimarckian would counter that the child must inherit piano skills. Otherwise, humanity would have the same level of piano skills forever. As an example, they say that gymnasts have been getting steadily better. This is the result, according to the lecture, of Lifelong Training of the Children of Acrobats and of Their Children. The improvement in gymnastics, therefore, is largely due to the transmission of the qualities directly acquired by training. This kind of thinking, according to Edwards, allowed people to feel more in control of their destinies, as opposed to Darwinism, where characteristics are hardwired into your DNA, changing only by mutation. And it wasn't just white people of that time who held these ideas about determinism.
0: The famed thinker, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, had this idea, not in a scientific way, but in a social way, of the talented 10th, that the top 10% of African Americans in terms of intelligence would lead the the race out of um, kind of the misery of being Black Americans. And so this idea has permutations.
5: Part of Roosevelt's neo-Lamarckianism was the concept of equipotentiality, Historian Kathleen Dalton writes that Lamarckians tended to accept the idea that all human capacity, including racial potential, was plastic and could be changed. Here's Michael Cullinan again.
6: Really what that means is that Roosevelt believed that within a generation we could remake ourselves. Not completely, say, but that we could effectively learn from the mistakes of past generations. And that's that's remarkable because it mean, it means that we are not just beholden to reproduction in order to progress civilization or progress the you know our gene pool, but that actually we can learn from history. Which of course he was a student of history. Uh, we can learn from history and make changes within a generation that have an impact upon ourselves and in a wider sense civilization. So that to me always struck me as an anti-racist idea, because in its essence, it means that anyone, regardless of skin color or, or anything really, where you were born or who you were born to, can can reach the heights that, that TR saw as the heights of civilization and the, the, the heights of personal uh, greatness. Now, the reality is, though, is that he didn't believe that a lot of different races would get there. He, you know, he does talk about um, African-Americans as being far behind white Anglo-Saxons or English-speaking peoples, uh, white English-speaking people. So there's a capacity in his thinking for equality, but it doesn't always present itself in how he views the world.
5: We've covered Roosevelt's theory of the stages of development before, but here's a quick refresher. T.R. believed that all races, nationalities, and civilizations went through certain stages. The lowest stage was savagism, which was marked by chaos. Next, barbarism, during which, in Dyer's words, military virtues were developed. Then came social efficiency, which blended military virtues with a love of order. It was followed by a stage where, Dyer writes, the great virile virtues diminished and were replaced by a love of ease, softness, willful sterility, and too much stress upon material possessions. And then, finally, the stage of decadence, or death. This thinking informed his views on race, both at home and abroad. Edwards calls T.R.'s experience fighting in the Spanish-American War transformative. After that war, of course, the U.S. was ceded Guam and Puerto Rico and got sovereignty of the Philippines.
0: With his role in the Spanish-American War and then his ascendancy as president— um, he presided over the not just the um, expansion of kind of U.S. ideas of de- democracy and military presence, but it reinforced the the idea that the native inhabitants of these new territories were somehow racially in- inferior and not fully prepared to participate in the democratic Project and this kind of relates to ideas of kind of the the stages of development and how he thought about international diplomacy. He believed that certain people in certain nations were not prepared to participate in democracy. Um, were not so socially and culturally prepared for that type of citizenship and participation.
5: According to Dyer, Roosevelt believed that certain members of other races had evolved to the point where they could participate, even if their races as a whole hadn't gotten there yet. Dyer writes that what Roosevelt said in public and in private suggests that he believed that the Black was largely incapable of assuming the role of citizen, and that that opinion grew stronger after his presidency. Roosevelt remained convinced that Blacks would become full citizens only very slowly, Dyer writes. In the meantime, full citizenship would go only to those good, privileged blacks like Booker T. Washington, William Crum, and Minnie Cox. Cox was a college-educated black woman who had been appointed to a postmaster position in Indianola, Mississippi by Benjamin Harrison. Her time in office was quiet until a white man decided he wanted her job, and a local politician began criticizing the town for the fact that they had accepted her in that role. The harassment got so bad that she resigned her post, but Roosevelt refused to accept her resignation, and actually suspended the post office in Indianola for a time.
0: He would not fire her or not let her resign, and so his standing up for her is significant as well. And so and so I think, think it proves that his ideas on race were complex at best, and perhaps unpredictable in many ways.
5: Unfortunately, it never got safe enough for Cox to return to work. And after she and other Black leaders told Roosevelt it would be impossible for any Black person to serve in Indianola— He reopened the post office and appointed a white person. Dr. Crum was a physician whom T.R. attempted to appoint to head up the Customs House in Charleston, South Carolina. The controversy over the appointment lasted for years. Dyer writes that Roosevelt hoped to enhance his standing with black Republicans in South Carolina and in the North, and that he achieved those ends. Still, Dyer notes, it would be erroneous to suggest that TR's administration had developed a policy intended to promote the cause of Black civil rights. The incident stands as another example of Roosevelt's commitment to the advancement of individual Blacks when political advantage coincided with ideology. TR's presidency also coincided with an increase in violence against African Americans. While he was horrified by and publicly denounced lynching, he didn't do anything to stop the violence
0: minus these bigger, more public moments with Booker T. Washington and Minnie Cox, he was fairly passive on um, intervention in the real incidences of racial violence that African-Americans were experiencing um, in the early 20th century. And so the increased uh, incidence of lynching, lynching, that many Black uh, journalists and writers and intellectuals were trying to publicize in really important ways. And he wasn't their advocate in this way.
5: Race was also a factor in what many today consider to be the biggest mistake of Roosevelt's presidency, the Brownsville affair. On August 13, 1906, a white man was killed and a police officer wounded in a riot in Brownsville, Texas. One hundred and sixty-seven black soldiers at a nearby military base were blamed for the incident, but they all proclaimed their innocence. Roosevelt demanded that the perpetrators be brought forward. When no one confessed or implicated a colleague, Roosevelt dishonorably discharged them all. He did not discharge the white soldiers.
0: These infantry men were essentially kicked out of the military. This left them without military benefits or pensions, which was a big deal because some of the members of the unit had had served for about two decades and kind of lost all of their military benefits,
5: though some tried to get him to walk back his decision, Roosevelt refused. He would not admit that he had been wrong.
0: It wasn't until About five decades later, during the civil rights uh, movement, that activists rallied for and pressured members of Congress to consider Roosevelt's decision. There were congressional hearings, and um, and it led to the military revoking the discharge, and the sole survivor received remuneration for his service. But this was too late, of course.
5: Outside the American Museum of Natural History is a statue of T.R. on horseback. Next to him on the ground are two figures, one African, one Native American. The statue is controversial today because it presents those two figures as submissive to Roosevelt, a clear picture of racial hierarchy. The museum is addressing that and Roosevelt's views on race in an exhibition called Addressing the Statue.
8: Some of what he wrote about Native American people, about African people, make your teeth hurt today.
5: That's David Hurst Thomas, a curator of anthropology at the American Museum of Natural History. And he is right. Roosevelt believed that Native Americans, according to his stages of development theory, were at the savage level, and he did not hold back in horribly and falsely maligning them. He wrote that Native Americans had an inhuman love of cruelty, for cruelty's sake, and would torture men, women, children, and even animals. He also indulged in stereotypes of Native Americans as drunkards. In 1886, Roosevelt gave a lecture in which he said,
4: I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are the dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every ten are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the tenth. The most vicious cowboy has more moral principle than the average Indian.
5: The fact that white men were pushing Native Americans out of their homelands didn't bother Roosevelt in the least. In his view, it was destiny for the white race to take over the continent. And it wasn't surprising that the superior white race had conquered the savage Indian race. Here's Edwards.
0: They were inhabiting land that was meant for white Americans.
5: He's kind of
0: inheriting a legacy from his presidential predecessors. The fact that they believed that Native American lands were not for Native
5: Americans. As president, Roosevelt supported the allotment system— which broke up reservations and forced Native peoples onto smaller, individually-owned lots with the goal of assimilating them into white society. He also said that programs like Pennsylvania's Carlisle Indian Industrial School, established in 1879, do a special and peculiar work of great importance. At these schools, which were located far from reservations, students were given new names and, quite often, baptized. They also weren't allowed to speak their Native languages. In his second address to Congress, Roosevelt wrote that, In dealing with the Indians, our aim should be their ultimate absorption into the body of our people. But again, Roosevelt's views were complicated. He admired the ferocity of Native American fighters and condemned white brutality against Native Americans that he had witnessed. And according to his biographer, Herman Hagedorn, he treated individual Native Americans with respect, despite his detestation of the race as a whole. In 1905, six Native Americans rode on horseback in Theodore Roosevelt's inaugural parade, a bid, according to Gilbert King at Smithsonian, who cites a contemporary newspaper, to show that they had buried the hatchet forever. One of those Native Americans was Geronimo. Though tales about him were exaggerated, the Apache's reputation meant that he was the tale parents in the American West told their children to get them to behave. But he had surrendered in 1886, He and his men had agreed to an exile of two years. They were shuttled to Florida, and while they were there, hundreds of Apache children were relocated to the Carlisle Industrial School in Pennsylvania. The prisoners of war were eventually reunited with their families in Alabama in 1888, but their journey wasn't over. The Apaches ended up in Oklahoma, where the captives were allowed to live around Fort Sill. By the time Geronimo met with Theodore Roosevelt on that March day in 1905, He had been a prisoner of war for almost 19 years. King writes that the warrior begged Roosevelt to send him and the rest of the Apaches back to Arizona, saying, take the ropes from our hands. But Roosevelt told Geronimo that he had a bad heart.
4: You killed many of my people. You burned villages and were not good Indians.
5: He said he would wait and see how you and your people act. Commissioner of Indian Affairs Francis Loop remarked, It is just as well for Geronimo that he is not allowed to return to Arizona. If he went back there, he'd be very likely to find a rope awaiting him. He was safer in Oklahoma. Geronimo had converted to Christianity in 1903, joining the Dutch Reformed Church, likely in part to influence Roosevelt. But Roosevelt never changed his mind. Later, after promising to confer with the Commissioner of Indian Affairs and Secretary of War about his case— he told Geronimo that there was no hope of letting him return to Arizona. It would only lead to more war. Tier apologized, saying that he had no feeling against Geronimo. Geronimo never returned to Arizona. He died, still a POW, in 1909. According to David Hurst Thomas, Roosevelt's views toward Native Americans may have changed, however slightly, toward the end of his life, thanks in part to a trip taken out to the Four Corners in 1913.
8: My interest, of course, is American Indians. So I looked at what he did to Indian people while he was president, and I have some real problems with that, with the Indian schools and cutting off their hair, and they can't speak their language and kill the Indian to save the man, and all this argument. He went out to the Four Corners and took a trail ride with one of his kids, and they ended up going to Hopi country, and he wrote three pieces about that.
5: Roosevelt observed the Hopi snake dance, a complex ritual that includes elements of handling rattlesnakes. But it was the ordinary lives of the Hopi that really had an impact on him. He called them a reasonably advanced and still advancing semi-civilization, not savagery at all. He noted that there was big room for improvement, but so there is among whites.
8: What he comes out of it saying is, you know, he didn't say he was wrong, but he says, now I can see there are things in these other cultures that deserve to be preserved.
5: He still wanted the Hopi to be gradually assimilated to the life of the best whites, he said, but now he wanted that assimilation to be shaped as to preserve and develop the very real element of Native culture possessed by the Native Americans, which, he said, in the end may become an important contribution to American cultural life. He hoped they would be absorbed into the white population on a full equality. In Roosevelt's four-volume The Winning of the West, he writes not just about Native Americans, but also about slavery. And just a warning, this section includes terms that some might find offensive. Slaveholders, he wrote, were the worst foes, not only of humanity and civilization, but especially of the white race in America.
4: The Negro, unlike so many of the inferior races, does not dwindle away in the presence of the white man. He holds his own. Indeed, under the conditions of American slavery, he increased faster than the white, threatening to
5: supplant him. And it gets even worse from there.
4: He actually has supplanted him in certain of the West Indian Islands, where the sin of the white in enslaving the black has been visited upon the head of the wrongdoer by his victim with a dramatically terrible completeness of revenge. Slavery is ethically abhorrent to all right-minded men and it is to be condemned without stint on this ground alone. From the standpoint of the master caste, it is to be condemned even more strongly because it invariably, in the end, threatens the very existence of that master caste. From this point of view, the presence of the Negro is the real problem. The slavery is merely the worst possible method of solving the problem.
0: He opposed slavery because he believed that um, the way that it evolved in the U.S., it meant that the United States was not created for anybody who wasn't white. And so he believed that when the British brought, uh, brought Af- African slaves to the colonies that became the, the nation, it kind of marked the history of the United States in a negative way, because from that that point on, uh, black people then had claims to their rights and their c- citizenships in a nation that was by and large created for whites. And so he was opposed to slavery, not on moral grounds, but really in in many ways on white sub- supremacist grounds. If he believed fundamentally that um, that slavery was a stain on the Republic, because the Republic was created for white, white men. It means that ideas of kind of the West, of Americans dominating and taming the Wild West about really ideas of manifest destiny, even. um, those, Those ideas were created by and for whites, white men in particular.
5: Did TR ever change his views on African-Americans and Native Americans?
0: Particularly with Native Americans and af- African-Americans, I don't think that his his views evolved that, that much. Um, while they may, may have changed for him, that didn't translate into meaningful policy I, and political I, change for people of color.
5: For someone who really admires Roosevelt, it can be hard to square these views and philosophies with his incredible life and accomplishments but to gloss over this would have left us with a two-dimensional view of Roosevelt and an incomplete picture of our own history. Given the many ways other historians have characterized Tiara's views on race, I asked Edwards how she would describe his views.
0: First and foremost, I think he believed in white supremacy. I would hesitate to say that he's a white supremacist. I think that he harbored and articulated and expressed Certain white supremacist agendas that translated to how he uh, governed as president, particularly on issues of race. Um, and yes, at the same same time, I do think that he was a man of his time and was influenced by his surroundings. But I also think it's important to to evaluate. Well, were there people around him or were there contemporaries who were expressing more progressive ideas on race and race relations? And the answer is a resounding yes, right? Um, he just calling him a racist, I think, is the easy way out. I think it's more interesting and more important to interrogate, well, why and how? It's easy for, for us to categorize historical figs, figures in binary terms, good or bad, in terms of the, our moral perceptions of them. But I also think it's 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 true that you know, understanding the time in which in which Roosevelt lives, and understanding the ways in which race relations were horrible at that that time, is important to understanding who he was as a president, who he was as a person, and really um getting a fuller understanding of of his so-called progressivism, because he may have been progressive in in terms of his um his thoughts on the economy you know trust busting he may have been progressive in certain other policy ways but on race he wasn't that's an important part of understanding our political figures right we live in a country that from the very beginning has been polarized along issues of race and so yes it is important to understand our public figures and political figures Perspectives on race, because it's such an important part in my my mind of what it means to be American, thinking about these questions, because it's an indelible part of the American story. The fact that um, he did amazing things for um, idealizing and realizing um, the, the beauty of, of America's natural landscapes, right, for, for ideas of conservation. That's really important. Um, and we don't have to denigrate that legacy with his problematic legacy on race and so you know i think that i think it's important to view historical figures as they were they're complex people with complex inner workings of their lives and 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 it's just important to understand that human complexity
5: and on that note we'll take a quick break
2: He scored. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Get in zone, AutoZone.
4: Welcome to AutoZone. What are you working on today? Ah, thinking about gas mileage. You know, changing your oil with a full synthetic oil like Castrol Edge can help your engine get more miles. Right now, you can get five quarts with an STP Extended Life oil filter for only $36.99. Get started on your next job today with the parts you need when you need them at AutoZone or AutoZone.com. Get in the
1: zone. AutoZone.
4: Restrictions apply.
1: You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi.
5: I don't know about you guys, but I think about alternate histories or parallel universes a lot. This might have something to do with my obsession with the TV show Lost, but I digress. I've been thinking about them a lot during this podcast, too. We live in a timeline where Theodore Roosevelt became president, but there's probably a timeline out there where he was a successful rancher or pursued natural history, or perhaps a timeline where he never dropped out of law school and instead became a lawyer. In another, he was focused on writing. And in another, Theodore Roosevelt was never even born. So what does the world look like in these universes?
8: Our country would have been a lot less conservation-minded.
5: That's Will Schaffroth of the National Park Foundation, who notes that in addition to creating wildlife refuges, which protected the nation's wildlife, and greatly expanding the national forest system, which set aside millions of acres for preservation, Tierra also planted the seeds for the National Park Service.
8: President Roosevelt really saw these public lands that were being set aside for their scientific value. The future was part of his motivation for this, and and that uh, I think also very forward thinking and and recognizing the it's sort of a place of humility. I think for him as a human being, see that that we are just here now, but there's so much we need to learn from what happened before uh, to inform how we live in the future, which is pretty powerful, I think.
5: Here's David Hurst-Thomas.
8: If you look at presidential actions over the last couple of centuries, what Roosevelt did with the landscape and wilderness is the most important thing that any president did between the Civil War and World War I. He was able to take those brief years of his presidency from 1901 to 1909, and make a lasting impression on this country that it's hard to even imagine what it would have been like had he not done that.
5: But of course, Roosevelt did more than just preserve lands. He quite literally changed the international landscape by helping to make sure the Panama Canal got built. Here's Clay Jenkinson.
0: We
8: would have gotten the canal. It was inevitable that there was going to be a canal. The United States would have almost certainly had to to build it, but, um, you know, there's nothing like a strong person to cut the Gordian knot and cut through all the diplomacy and nonsense and BS and the lobbying and so on.
5: Without TR, it probably would have just taken longer, a lot longer. There would have been political implications, too, if TR had never been president. Here's Michael Cullinane.
6: I reckon the Republican Party would have gone on to win elections until the Great Depression. There would have never been Woodrow Wilson. I think the United States probably would have intervened in World War One sooner, because the Republicans were were much more they were more pro-allied than Wilson was. So I think we probably could have had a short World War One. And can you imagine if World War One ended sooner, and the Germans lost sooner? It would have been, I mean, millions of lives would have been saved. But yeah, I, it's it's a it's a fun question. If Roosevelt wasn't president, would we have? All these lands preserved, like, you know, do we have national parks the way we have them today? I very much doubt that. Without his really remarkable ability to push the Antiquities Act and then successive executive orders preserving these lands, we probably don't have places like the Grand Canyon preserved or the vast woodlands of the the North Pacific.
5: And there's one other big thing that probably wouldn't have happened if TR had never been president. Do you think we get an FDR without TR?
6: I mean, if we're doing counterfactuals on FDR, I think probably not. He's got this ideological connection to Theodore Roosevelt. And if Theodore Roosevelt hadn't been president, I can't imagine how FDR would have developed his own, his own ideology. And, I mean, obviously in 1920, he, the only reason why he gets to run as vice president is because he's got that name. And there's loads of evidence about that from the Democratic National Committee saying that, you know, he's, he's, he's okay, but he's got the right name.
5: Which one of his accomplishments or policies had the biggest positive impact?
6: Well, I I don't think it was just conservation that was a major positive impact, although that's that's got to count as one of the the big ones. But I think his ability to manage the big businesses and, and labor relations of his time really kicks off the progressive era. The, the capital and labor question was the biggest question of his time. It's what defines the Gilded Age. Um, it's, it's, it's why we have a progressive era, is because you know the, the role of government is becoming greater and greater, and Roosevelt is really the key figure at the helm of that movement, even if, of course, there's a lot of activists and grassroots um, uh, movements that are moving the United States towards that.
5: And which of his accomplishments or policies do you think had the biggest negative impact?
6: I think Roosevelt could have done more for equality, um, uh, more for equality of the sexes, and more for equality uh, among races. I think having Booker T. Washington to to the White House for dinner is a is a good thing, uh, but I think other policies were were far far worse. You know, uh, discriminatory, and I mean that in terms of immigration. I mean that in terms of Native Americans, I mean that in terms of African Americans. There's a lot more that he could have done around inequality. On the sexes, it's interesting that there's this um, cultural feeling, even within his own family, that women uh, really, they're not, it's not that they're not fit to vote, it's just this sort of like lingering uh, tradition that women don't vote. I mean, Roosevelt wrote an undergraduate thesis about women and suffrage, and I think Actually had progressive views and voices those progressive views in 1912 when he's running for president, but he never really sees these through while he while he's president or you know when he's you know planning to when he's a Republican. When I suppose he 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 takes on suffrage in 1912 because it's politically expedient. It's not something that he has this passion for. And I think one of the things that he could have done better would would have been to work for greater equality amongst the sexes, the races, etc.
5: We live in the timeline where T.R. was president, where his mug ended up on Mount Rushmore. Bully for us. After visiting that site, I pick up Tyler Klang, one of the producers on this podcast, and we drive from Rapid City straight up into Medora, North Dakota, where T.R. retreated after the deaths of his wife and mother in 1884. When T.R. came here from New York, he was clearly an outsider, a dude in a buckskin suit with a knife from Tiffany. In my all black ensemble, I too feel a little bit like a dude when we roll into Medora. Population 112.
7: Describe Medora for the listening audience.
5: So, Medora is Medorable, I would say. <laughs> I'm show
7: myself like it.
5: out. <laughs> um, it looks like, you know, your typical little Wild West town. There's like those storefronts or like. The fronts of the buildings that are, like, really flat and and square. There's just, like, these beautiful buttes, rock formations or something. I don't know what they're technically called. Just, like, around the town. Medora has made much of its association with TR. Tyler and I are staying in the historic wing at the Rough Riders Hotel, which has little teddy bears dressed up as Rough Riders on the beds. There's a statue of TR as a Rough Rider, a one-man TR show starring Joe Wiegand, whose voice you've heard in this podcast, and a burger place called the Maltese Burger, after TR's ranch, Maltese Cross. And, of course, Theodore Roosevelt National Park is here, with the actual Maltese Cross cabin. Roosevelt also plays a role in the Medora musical, which is described as the rootness, tootness, boot-scootness show in all the Midwest— Before the show, Tyler and I attend a cowboy cookout during which steaks are cooked on pitchforks. They are literally stacked on pitchforks and stuck into a grill, and it is wild. Then we settle in for the musical, which is a variety show that features Medora's famous and infamous characters with a healthy dose of musical theater belting. It is extremely my thing. We see TR's arrival in Medora and the charge up Kettle Hill. Who
4: made it to the White House? It is here that the romance of my life began. I would never have become president had it not been for my time spent in the West. If he had but one
6: memory of his life that he could take with him, what would it be? His response? would be of my time hunting and ranching in
5: Dakota. And then the show ends with T.R. belting out a song from The Greatest Showman. Afterwards, we chat with Ken Quiricone, one of the Burning Hill singers who plays T.R., QueerCone has been with the show for eight seasons, but has only played TR since last year.
6: We are so lucky to have that presence when he was, in, he was time as a conservationist, as a president. It was so awesome that we had, we had that person that loved the land, loved the loved the people who
1: mm-hmm.
6: use land. It was cool that he used the land properly. Yeah, so he is truly one of my favorite presidents yeah. for that, and it's very humbling and it's awesome that I get to uh, do it on stage every night. It's pretty cool.
5: We only had a couple of days here in North Dakota before we have to turn around and make the trek back to the Rapid City Airport. Beyond visiting the Elkhorn site, we didn't have time to journey into the park, which is a bummer, because we were both really, really hoping to see a bison. We opt against getting up at 6am to drive through the park, and decide instead to make a quick stop at the Painted Canyon on the way out of town. Maybe, I tell Tyler, we'll see a bison there. It's hard to describe Painted Canyon, but I'm going to try. In some other timeline, it's possible that this landscape would be dotted with oil derricks or machines digging out the coal, but in this one, the one where Theodore Roosevelt prioritized saving lands like these, there are mounds of various sizes as far as the eye can see. The mounds have been worn away by erosion to reveal colorful layers. The brown and tan layers are sandstone, siltstone, and mudstone. The blue-gray layers are bentonite clay— a.k.a. the stuff that's used in some brands of kitty litter, which was created by the ash from volcanic eruptions. Black is a layer of coal, and red is clinker, which is created when the layers of coal catch fire and cook the layer above it, and also a word I will never get tired of saying. Some faces of the mounds are covered in grass and trees. The sky above is full of gray clouds, and I can see distant rain. It is breathtaking. We turn around to head back to the car, and
0: it's a bison.
5: The bison is across the road from the visitor center, head down, grazing on grass, his tail flipping away flies. Male bison can weigh up to 2,000 pounds and stand six feet tall, and this guy is huge. In 1885, Theodore Roosevelt wrote, The extermination of the buffalo has been a veritable tragedy of the animal world. At that point, less than a thousand of the animals existed. Twenty years later, as president, he became one of the founding members of the American Bison Society, which used bison from the Bronx Zoo in New York to bolster wild herds. The bison we're looking at is a very physical symbol of Roosevelt's legacy. So is the undisturbed beauty of the Grand Canyon, the sequoias in Yosemite, the hills of Painted Canyon. As I've wrapped up work on this podcast, I've been thinking a lot about something Michael Cullinan said about how we can never really know what TR would do in situations today or who he'd support politically or even who he really was.
6: The reality is, is he's lost to to, to the past. But, you know, and the past is different from history. We get to make up history. The past is something that we can never recreate perfectly. And that is, that's a good thing. It means that we can learn a lot about ourselves through how we understand the past. And it's why Theodore Roosevelt's legacy is all over the place from the 1920s, because in different generations, people remember him differently.
5: What do you think is TR's ultimate legacy?
6: It's whatever we want it to be. Tomorrow, you know, everything might change, and we might have a completely different view on Roosevelt. And whatever it is at that moment is is whatever we're interested in. And right now, it's about the environment. It's about conservation. 20 years ago, it was about, um, about a hero. I mean, Edmund Morris's book comes out, I think, in 79, The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt. And that was at a time when, you know, Watergate had happened. Jimmy Carter wasn't very popular. America wanted a hero. and So Edmund Mars provides this book about a hero. So I think, you know, we don't know what's going to come up in the next year, two years, 20 years, but whatever does come up, Theodore Roosevelt remains popular, and we will extract from his legacy what we want.
5: Theodore Roosevelt's legacy might be malleable. We might never be able to really know who he was. But standing in these places he helped preserve, staring at a species he helped save, maybe we can tap into how they made him feel and why he felt it was so important to save them. And ultimately, how lucky we are that he did. So this is it, the final regular episode of the first season of History Versus. I have had so much fun making this podcast. This has been my passion project, but it wasn't just me who brought it to life. Behind every podcast host is a great team helping to make it happen. This project wouldn't have been possible without the Mental Floss staff, who helped me write scripts as well as supplemental TR content on mentalfloss.com slash or without the support of the people at our parent company, Minute Media. And I really couldn't have done this without the incredible production team at iHeartRadio, who very patiently walked me through this process and made these episodes sound so amazing. Finally, I want to thank the experts who very generously gave so much of their time to this project. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening. If you have any questions for me about TR or just want to see pics of all the TR stuff on my desk, you can find me on Twitter at Aaron C. McCarthy. We'll be dropping bonus episodes from time to time, and our second season will come out later on this year. Until then, speak softly and carry a big stick. History Verses is hosted by me, Aaron McCarthy. This episode was written by me with fact checking by Austin Thompson, field recording by John Mayer. Joe Wiegand voiced Theodore Roosevelt in this episode. The executive producers are Aaron McCarthy, Julie Douglas, and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. The show is edited by Dylan Fagan and Lowell Berlanti. Special thanks to the Popes. Lane Johnson, Sharon Wright, Aretha Wilson, Justine Hill Edwards, Michael Cullenane, Tyler Culliberta, Clay Jenkinson, Will Shafroth, Marine McGee Bollinger, and David Hurst Thomas. To learn more about this episode and Theodore Roosevelt, check out our website at mentalfloss.com/historyverses. That's mentalfloss.com/historyvs. History Verses is a production of iHeartRadio and Mental Floss.
3: For more podcasts from
6: iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.